Good evening, everyone. Great to see you all again. I think it's good to be reminded um, just, uh, just how blessed we are. We've got a great team up here leading us in worship, and I hope that your heart is knit to the words that you sing. I hope that means something to you, that you're not just singing words, but that you really are worshiping Christ. I also want us to not take for granted the fact that you are here right now and you are drawing breath at this very moment. Have you ever stopped to consider sometimes? Um, in fact, it's usually a practice of mine when I pray to thank God that I even have breath in my lungs. It's not owed to me. It's not owed to you. Every breath that we take is not deserved. It's a gift from God. What are you going to do with it? And that's really what we're challenging you this week is to see Christ as worthy so that every breath you take can be lived for his glory. I want to mention a, um, an event in history that I thought was interesting as we think about this week. In 1848 in the United States, there was a very interesting event happening on the West Coast of the United States. Gold was found in California. The news first came to those in San Francisco area, and immediately after hearing the news that gold was found and that it was accessible and attainable to make one rich, once the news got to San Francisco, the storefronts began to just completely vacate. People who were working stores said, I'm leaving my store, I'm going to find the gold. It's my way of getting rich. Who cares if my store goes under, if I find gold, I am rich. News started to spread to nearby islands such as Hawaii, um, even some other places, uh, some states like Oregon, um, other countries like Mexico began to hear of this, even China as well. And the news began to spread and people began to go after this gold because gold promised wealth and wealth promised happiness. They left everything. In, in fact, in the United States, there was an article published on the East Coast um, comparing the streams, like we have a stream here, comparing the streams of the East Coast to the West Coast, and they said this, our streams have minnows, but their streams are paved with gold. And this was setting the idea of, you need to go, go now, go find this gold. This led to masses of people taking out loans just to support their trip across country to find the gold. They mortgaged their houses, they sold everything they could to just afford the trip to maybe find the gold. And some found gold. Many did not. In fact, many died even in the pursuit of the gold. They died on the way. They worked tirelessly looking for this gold in freezing streams. Uh, they died of disease. They were malnourished. And yes, some became rich, but many did not. Many died. In fact, this promise of gold was no guarantee. Even for those who had gold, it didn't equate to happiness. 
was interesting, though, how when this happened, when, when news happens in the world of something that is worthy of your affection and your pursuit happens, everybody drops what they're doing and they want to go after it. And this was for simple gold that perishes. And it got me thinking about um, those who see Christ as worthy. Um, and Christ is infinitely greater than gold. What I mean by that is in many, many senses of the word, for one, um, God created gold. <laughs> um, so better, of course. But this, remember, the promise of gold can be symbolic of the promise of anything in this world. It promises you something it can't deliver because it's not God. Christ, though, always delivers. There's never been a person who has said Christ is worthy and believed that in their hearts that has been disappointed. Never. And there never will be. That doesn't mean there are moments where we are tempted to not think he's valuable, but it does mean those who see him as worthy will never be disappointed. And I was thinking about that. When you see Christ as worthy, that's our goal, that you would see him as worthy and that you would drop everything. Every other pursuit that you have going on in your life would fall by the wayside for the sake of attaining Christ. This morning we spoke about how specifically you cannot see Christ as worthy until you first see yourself as what? Unworthy. That's pretty significant. That's pretty important. You won't see him as worthy until you see yourself as unworthy and in desperate need. It's pretty interesting. Remember, our theme verse for the week is this, Revelation 5, 9. They sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. For you were, what? Slain. Slain. And purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. The worthiness of Christ is directly linked to the cross. We've sang about it tonight. If you think you see Christ without seeing his work on the cross, you have not seen Christ. If you think you believe in Christ, but you do not know his work on the cross, you are not in Christ. Because it is only by the work of the cross that you can be saved. So... You might be wondering in your heart this week, and even now, is Christ really worthy? Is he really worthy of following? Is he really worthy of laying aside the other pursuits that I have? Is he really worth giving up all of my sin? I can see how he might be worthy of giving up some of my sin, but all, is he really worthy of that? Is he worthy of all of my thoughts, all of my actions, all of my worship, all of my time? Is he worthy? And we talked about earlier, he is, whether you believe that or not. And it says he's worthy 
for he was slain. In order to understand why he is worthy, you must see where he was slain and why he was slain. So I cannot look and direct your gaze to any other place other than the cross. It is the work of the cross that shouts the beauty, love, and majesty of Christ. The Apostle Paul was enamored with the cross. He was in love with the cross, so much so that he says in Galatians 6.14, and I pray that this would be true of you by the end of this week if it isn't true already today. He says this, But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. This was Paul's only boast. But Paul didn't always only have that boast, did he? He was not born worshiping Christ because we are born dead, right? But when he saw Christ, every other boast that he had in himself he was undone. It fell off. He used to boast in other things. And I would ask you to consider right now, what is it that you boast in? That doesn't mean you have to say it verbally. You might not be like, well, I don't boast. Oh, yes, you do. You boast in something whether you say it or not. You're boasting in something. What are you boasting in? If it's something other than the cross, you're missing it. Because Paul says when he saw Jesus on that cross, he boasted in nothing else. He saw himself as completely unworthy and Christ alone as worthy. This is why he says, and this is why, this is why I come to you in this way this week. He said this in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. In fact, I'll just read verse 2 because I think that's the most important. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's all over the Scriptures, this work on the cross. Paul determined to come to people who didn't know Christ and preach Him crucified. He says he didn't come with superiority of speech. I don't care about that. I want to show you Christ. Before we look more fully at what was done, it's important to think about that. Again, you might be familiar with talking about the cross, but that is interesting to say you boast in someone who died. That's your boast. That's your king. The king that Paul and all Christians live for is one who did not come to this earth to live on an earthly throne. Although he will reign forever. But when he came, he didn't come to rule on earth. He didn't come with massive armies to exert force and dominate, even though many Jews thought that he would. But uh, this king came to die. This 
is foolishness to the world. Jesus, King of kings, the Son of God, who we read about earlier today from John 1, the Word who was in the beginning with God became flesh to die. He came to go to the cross. You say, well, did he really have to go to the cross? Was it really on his mind that he was going to go to the cross? Didn't the bad guys seemingly win when they put him on the cross? Acts 2. I want you to see this. Turn to Acts 2. You've got to see this. Acts 2, verse 22 through 24, we'll read to start. This is Peter preaching a sermon talking about Jesus. It says this, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. I want to stop there for a second. Remember, this morning we read about the fall. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. This was, this was, this did not catch God by surprise, by the way. He knew it. He knew they would fall. It was his plan to send Christ. This is the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God that this Christ would come. But interestingly, look, let's read on. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There were those who killed Jesus. They thought they had won. They thought they had done away with him. They, they thought that his death would silence him. Little did they know this was the plan of God. And verse 24 says he didn't stay dead. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. That's an amazing statement. Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan of God. This means he came to earth to die. This wasn't an accident. But it's also why this was foolishness to the world because kings don't die. Kings have victory by conquering. But this king would also have victory by conquering, but it would require a cost that no one could pay. Only he could pay. In fact, I, want, I think the cross is so important to the scriptures that if you remove the story of the cross from the scriptures, you may as well throw it out. You throw it out. If someone says, ah, I don't like that old cross stuff, but the rest of the Bible is pretty good, say it's worthless. If the cross is gone, there's no salvation. Sure, there's still a glorious God, but there's no hope for you. 
The grand story, sometimes we forget about this, that the book in your hands written by God is a story. It is a story, the greatest story ever told, the greatest redemption you could ever read about. This is the pinnacle of the redemption plan when you look at the cross. In fact, the Old Testament was pointing to the cross the whole time was pointing to Jesus the whole time. And those who live in the New Testament after the cross are constantly looking back at the cross. Genesis 3, which we read earlier, and we didn't read this specific part, but after the fall happens, the punishments or the consequences are laid out. But in those consequences, there is a promise of the seed of the woman. Right? The seed of the woman would do what? Would crush the head of the serpent. Though the serpent may wound the seed, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. In fact, from Genesis 3, I really want you to get this picture because on the cross, this is solved. You remember in the beginning, they were placed, Adam and Eve, in the Garden of Eden, perfect fellowship with God walking with God, they had life, right? When they left, they would die. But at the end of chapter 3, there's an interesting thing that happens. In Genesis 3, verse 24, it says, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. When Adam and Eve left the garden, there was placed the cherubim and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, it was saying this, you're not getting back in. The way to life is shut. You cannot attain it. As we go on though, we read about the one who will make a way. In fact, this seed of the woman is the very basic form of the gospel that we see, even in seed form, predicting one that would come to crush the serpent that points to Christ. A few chapters later, we get to a promise to Abraham that says this, Abraham, in you, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed pointing to one who would come to be a source of blessing upon the nations. Uh, we fast forward a little bit into Exodus. You know during the plagues, right? They're in Egypt. They're suffering slavery. The plagues are coming. And the angel of God is about to come and take the firstborn of every single household. What do they put on the doorpost? They put the blood of a lamb so that the judgment of God would pass over them. After seeing the blood, the angel of God would not destroy. Moving on further still, once the Israelites are freed, they are set free, they are given a law. You must do all of these things, showing that perfect holiness was required. But we've got a problem, right? Perfect holiness is required, but we're dead. The law was meant to show you can't do it. 
You cannot keep what is required. And not only that, but in the law, there were sacrifices constantly being offered, showing you this point. Sin requires payment. Sin requires blood. Sin requires death. Moving on even still, there's a promise made to David of one who would sit on the throne forever and his kingdom would know no end. Moving on even past David, there's constantly prophecies made of someone, this future someone that would come to make a way to be saved. Isaiah 53 very clearly speaks of some suffering servant Someone who would come to die for the many. And then we receive a period of 400 years of silence after Malachi is penned. 400 years where the world may have thought God had forgotten them. And on one very specific day, because Jesus is real, it's not just a story that's made up, Jesus is real. On one night, Jesus was born. His birth was announced by a mighty angel named Gabriel. His birth was announced by a multitude of angels to the shepherds, right? Do you remember what they said? They said, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. Have you ever thought about that before? The angels have been with the Lord since they were created, they've known, at least in some way, of his plan. They know Jesus is God. Now Jesus comes out of heaven and takes flesh and comes to earth. You think the angels are excited? I think so. They are beyond excited because they know who he is. Jesus, Son of God, takes flesh. And in flesh, he grows in wisdom and knowledge of the Lord, and he never sinned. He overcame every single temptation. He fully obeyed, not partial obedience, because by the way, that would not be enough. If Jesus is not God and he is not perfect, salvation is out the window. This is why we reject any religion that says Jesus is less than God. Because there is no salvation in that Jesus. But this Jesus came, fully obeyed. He came and did mighty works, showing himself to be God. Some people saw Jesus and they wanted to make him king. They thought, this is great. Put him on a throne. He can rule. Jesus said, you don't get it. That's not why I'm here. There were others that hated him. And everything he said and sought to kill him and destroy him. Jesus Christ, the God-man, who, by the way, had full authority in a moment's notice to send one angel to wipe out all his enemies if he wanted to. He refuses to stop them in their efforts because all of that rebellion, all of that hatred was leading him towards the goal. 
all of the ones who hated Christ, he could have just struck down. But he said, no, they're going to put me right where I need to be. They're going to put me on the cross. Jesus, the God-man, is betrayed. He's arrested. He's falsely accused. There's even a wicked sinner named Barabbas that is released instead of him. This is nonsense. This is crazy. Everybody clearly can see he's innocent. He's condemned by the people that he came to save. And he's not condemned just to any death. These Jews couldn't put someone on the cross. These Jews had to get the Romans involved because they wanted him to suffer. They wanted him to die in the most cursed way. Because you know what their law said about those who hang on a tree? You're cursed. Those who hang on a tree have a symbol on them. It's like a blinking light that says, cursed of God. The Jews thought that of Jesus. They hated him. They wanted him put on the cross so that everyone could see, cursed of God. On the way to this cross, he is spit on, he's mocked, he's beaten with flesh-tearing punishments, and frankly, he's a bloody mess on the way to Calvary's hill. And when he gets to Calvary, he's not done. The nails are driven through his hands and his feet to fix him permanently on the cross so that he would die. The cross is raised up and he would face excruciating pain with every single breath that he would take. But that was the light punishment. The bodily turmoil that Jesus took on the cross was light compared to having to pay and handle the wrath of God. In a finite, small amount of time, Jesus would bear the full weight of the wrath of God on the cross. It takes us an eternity to bear that weight. Jesus took it. On his shoulders and when he had suffered long enough like we sang John 1930 says this therefore when Jesus had received the sour wine he said it is finished and he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit what was finished the blood sacrifice for the sins of mankind the blood sacrifice for your sins the payment that was required was made and the goal and the purpose for which Jesus came to this earth was accomplished this was an exclamation by Jesus it is finished and I'm not sure we know what tone that it is finished takes. But I tend to think it's an exclamation because the redemption plan that was long determined of old was finally accomplished. And you know, of course, what happened with the curtain. When Jesus dies, the curtain, the veil is torn in two. 
the way to God is open. You see, we glory and boast in a crucified king because his crucifixion opens the way to life. You all know how we spoke of in the garden. The symbol was clear. The cherubim and the flaming sword were meant to tell you the way of life is shut. It's closed. You can't cross. You can't enter it. On the cross, Jesus says, it's open. But you see, we don't only boast in a crucified king because he didn't stay dead. Right? When we say the cross, we're not just saying just the cross. It's the whole work of the cross. He didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave. And it showed this, that God had accepted the payment. God had accepted the sacrifice. If Jesus doesn't raise, his payment doesn't go through, and he has no victory over sin and death. So when we say we boast in this cross, it is this work on the cross that Jesus would come and die for sinners. Because on the cross, you remember we said the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. On the cross, we see it. We see that fulfilled. On the cross, we see the fulfilled promise to Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. You know how I know that? Because Revelation 5, 9, our theme verse says, he's purchased from every tongue, tribe, and nation with his blood. On the cross, this Jesus fulfilled the promise to David and took his eternal throne. And on the cross, Jesus became the Passover lamb. You know, in our culture today, sometimes we forget what, if you said the word lamb to a Jew, or you called someone the lamb of God, that would not be a, a good title because lambs were slaughtered. Lambs were meant to be sacrificed for sin. To call someone the Lamb of God would have been very peculiar. That is the title Jesus gives himself. I am the Lamb of God. I'm the one who needs to be sacrificed for you to be forgiven. I'm the one whose blood you need to paint on the doorpost. Not a physical doorpost, but the doorpost of your heart. You see, when we all die and judgment day comes, the only ones who will escape God's judgment are those who God looks and says, I see the blood. I see the blood. You won't face judgment. He won't be looking for, wow, you did a lot in your life. Wow, you were mostly good. Wow, you didn't do anything that bad. That's not enough. Judgment comes upon you. But Jesus goes to the cross as the lamb to die. This blood cleanses. This is not a blood that just comes upon you and you stay dirty. This blood cleanses you from your sins. 
You see, the way to life is now open because of two reasons. One, because your sins, which you're guilty of, right? If you're dead in your sins, you have committed sins, you have offended God, on the cross your sins are paid for. But did you know it wouldn't be enough for your sins to just be paid for? If God said, I will forgive you of your sins, that's it. It's not enough because there's still a standard to meet perfect, holy righteousness. That is what happens on the cross. You see a perfect blend of the two that when you believe, your sins are forgiven But not only that, you are perfect because of Christ's righteousness. It is on the cross that you see the love of God for you. And I want to challenge you this week with this. So often, we we should teach a mighty, holy God that is so infinitely above us. That is good and that is true. But sometimes you forget That God does not sit stoic towards you in heaven. He does not sit emotionless. He does not sit there apathetic. His whole redemption plan was motivated out of love for you. He is holy, but he's loving. Romans 5, 6-8 says this, If you want to understand the love of God, remember this verse, these verses. For while we were still helpless, by the way, we're helpless because we're dead. While we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man, someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The very people dead and rejecting him, enemies of God, Jesus dies for. You don't think God loves you? You realize he didn't have to do any sort of redemption plan. You could have stayed dead in your sins forever and God would have been totally just and good. God was not obligated to save anyone. You realize that, right? When mankind fell, he could have said, I'm done with you. Have you ever considered that? Consider the angels. When Satan fell and the demons fell, there is no redemption offered to angels. There's no hope. Sinned, rebelled against God, no hope. But you, God specifically loved you to make a way of redemption, make a way of life. You could never save yourself, but God made a way for you when you did not have to. The interesting thing about this is there's a unique thing that happens on the cross because remember, God is holy, right? We've established that. He cannot overlook wrong. There is no such thing as sweeping sins under the rug in God's eyes. He can't do it. It would be against his nature not to punish sin. 
and you can't purchase your salvation. So how can we be redeemed? How can God be both holy and offer you salvation? He's got to kill his son. It's the only way. There's only one who could be perfect and perfectly pay for sins and only one who could represent you so that God could be holy in pouring out his wrath upon Jesus and God could be holy in inviting you into heaven through Jesus Christ, his son. It cost Jesus' life to do it. What must you do? What must you do to be saved? It's not enough to just acknowledge these things. It's not enough to just acknowledge that Jesus did it, that Jesus died. You must look to him in faith, and you will live. You might say, well, wait a minute. How is it that simple? Um, it wasn't simple to, com- to, to purchase salvation. Jesus had to die. But for you, he makes the way very clear. You did none of the work. You simply cling in faith and say, I can't do it. He did, though. I believe. I want you to turn to Numbers chapter 21. I want you to see this. Numbers 21, this is the Israelites walking through the wilderness and once again sinning against God. Once again complaining against the God who brought them out of slavery. In verse 5 it says, chapter 21 verse 5, it says, the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food. These people, after all of what we just talked about with the plagues, brought them out mightily from Egypt, says, we loathe your food, God. We loathe it. We wish we were back in Egypt, because at least then we would have died a little bit happier. So what does God do? Verse 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. These serpents are said to be fiery, not in the sense that they're probably on fire, but in the sense that they have some sort of venom that would be like you're burning from the inside. He sends fiery serpents to judge the people, and it says that many people died. I want you to think about that scene for a moment. One day, you're just walking around in the camp. The next moment, all these serpents come. People are getting bit left and right. People are dying. I'm talking about families. You're looking around. Parents are looking at their children getting bit. Children are looking at their parents getting bit. Their friends, they're dying. This is chaos. This is emergency. This is death. This is agony. This is not a time, by the way, where they had medicine to treat this. You get bit, you die. There was no healing, no hope, but that's not where it ends. Look at verse 7. 
So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. God could have stopped there and said, no, I've done enough for you. I'm not making a way for you to be saved. But God is so gracious. When you think of God, I want you to remember his posture towards you is one of grace. He is ready to extend it to you. He is ready. Verse 9 says this, or sorry, verse 8. Then the Lord said to Moses, instead of refusing, he says this, make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard or a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. This is such an interesting story because as you can see, the Israelites did nothing to purchase this salvation. They did nothing to earn it. In fact, they earned the exact opposite. God was under no obligation to save them, but he says, I'm going to raise up something that you could simply do this, Israelite, look and live. I want you to remember that. Look and live because we're going to flip over to John 3. Flip to John 3. John 3, verse 14 and 15. We're going to read in just a moment. A lot of people know John 3, 16, but these two verses preceded, and it's interesting because... Nicodemus, who's talking to Jesus, is wanting to know, how can I be born again? Little does Nicodemus know he's talking to the one who can save him. And so he says in verse 14, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Why? So he's just said he's going to be lifted up. We know that to be on the cross. Why would Jesus go to the cross? Why does it matter to you today? Verse 15. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. You see, the bronze serpent in the Old Testament gave them physical life. They just didn't die. But this one who would be lifted up on the cross would give eternal life. How do you attain that eternal life? Simply look and live. This is the message of the cross. Have you looked to Jesus on the cross? And I don't just mean contemplating him. I mean looking to him as your only hope. Because you might not think that you've been bit by a serpent that's going to kill you. Oh, you're right. You have been bit by something far worse. 
Because the fiery serpent only killed physically. You've been bit by sin, which kills eternally. You may not know it, but you're dying on the inside. This is an urgent matter. You must look to Jesus on the cross. Not as a nice option, but as the only option. Have you seen your sin? Have you seen your desperate need? Have you seen and considered this? It's a dangerous thing to bank on tomorrow. It's a dangerous thing to assume that you're going to wake up in the morning. Have you seen Jesus? Because if you have, you will live. And if you refuse to look because you don't see him as worthy, you will die. This is why Paul says what he says. I can boast in nothing else except the cross of Christ because he went to the cross for me to do something I could not do for myself. The perfect Son of God. This is interesting to consider that the world, when they see this, they, they still look on. And I'm praying, this is why I'm praying this week, that those of you who may see this as foolishness, that your, the scales would come off. Because you might hear this and think, I don't like this story. The, the king dies, and, and, and we have to believe? I don't want a bloody savior, because I don't need a savior. The cross is offensive to those who do not believe. It's offensive. In fact, Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, if you ever hear preaching on the cross that doesn't offend a lost person, you haven't heard preaching on the cross. Because the cross is foolishness to the lost. They hate it. They, they reject it. They say foolishness. And I want you to think of this because we're so far removed from the cross and thankfully we don't have people being crucified around us all the time for us to see. But you need to remember something. The cross in this day and age, the very cross that, by the way, has become the symbol for Christianity, right? People get it tattooed. People wear necklaces with a cross around. You go into a church. You see on a steeple a cross. You go into a church and you see on the backdrop a cross. You see crosses everywhere. But I want to spin this image at you. Imagine you walked into a random building and there was a massive painting of an electric chair. You walked into a building with people wearing necklaces having an electric chair wrapped around their neck. Or maybe you walk into uh, the bathroom and, uh, and you see a painting in there and it's of a guillotine to chop someone's head off. You would think, where am I? Right? Because you would be like, why are these devices of torture and death being proclaimed? Why are these devices being boasted in? This doesn't make any sense. That's the cross. The cross 
where people would look at and they would say, if you were on a cross, you were cursed of God. It was the worst death imaginable. And yet, for those who are being saved, for you in this room who are being saved, and I mean who will one day experience the fullness of salvation, but you're saved already, for those of you who are being saved, the cross is not foolishness to you. You see the wisdom and the power of God unto salvation. You boast in that cross, not because of just the cross, but because of Jesus and the work he did on that cross. Don't be surprised that the cross is offensive to some, but for you, do you see it as beautiful? Do you see the cross as your only hope? Those who want to come to Christ outside of the cross cannot get in. We love the cross. We love this story. We love this story because this is the story whereby you are saved. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see Jesus on that cross coming to die for you? You might not think, well, he couldn't have possibly had me in mind. I think he had every single one of his elect in mind. Every moment he knew, I'm going to the cross to purchase for myself a people. I've got to die to do it. There was no other way. Revelation 5, again, it's our theme verse. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain. Christ is worthy because of who he is, yes, but because of what he has done. He is worthy of all of your praise. He is worthy of all of your life. He is worthy of all of your glory because of what he has done for you. You didn't deserve it either. But guess what? We're all in the same boat in that. I don't deserve it. You don't deserve it. But Christ freely offers it. He has slayed his son in your place. You know, Isaiah 53 speaks on that. It's the will of God to crush him. I can't fully even, I can't even partially wrap my mind around that. Wouldn't imagine sacrificing any of my children for you. And I love you guys, but I can't fathom that. Especially people who I don't even like. That's the message of the gospel. It's unconditional love. You might say, well, I don't deserve it. Amen. You might say, well, you don't really know what I've done. It can't be that simple. Oh, it is! Because the work is done. Those three words, it is finished. When you believe in Christ, your works also are done. You rest in that. All the internal striving for peace, you have it. 
Christ is worthy because of this cross. He's not only worthy because of his death, he's worthy because he raised and demonstrated power over death. This is the Christ. Have you seen him? Have you seen the glorious Christ? You've got to first see your need. You've got to first see yourself as dead. But when you see yourself as dead and unworthy, this is what I meant earlier when I say you're on the right path. Simply look and live. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for this time. Thank you for the work of the cross. It's by your wounds that we are healed. Undeserving. And we can never do anything enough to repay you. But Lord, because we have seen you, we love you, and we want to live for you. And Lord, I do ask again that those who haven't seen Christ, that they haven't seen him as worthy, that maybe they're tempted to believe a lie tonight, that God doesn't love them, please help them to remember the cross where it is out of love that you shed your blood for us, unworthy sinners. And I pray for those in this room that are saved, that we would never stop boasting in the cross, not as our main boast, but as our only boast. Please move among us, Lord. We need your spirit. Without it, we are hopeless. We've got no power. But your word has power. So Lord, I do pray that you would move and I expect you to move, not because you owe it to us, but because you move through the preaching and teaching of your word and specifically your son magnified. So I pray in the small group hour ahead that you would bless the conversation, bless the time just journaling. Show them yourself, Lord, we pray. Amen.